2: Hello, hello, Lenny Wilkins, you out there?
3: I'm here, Kenny. I'm here, I'm hearing you.
2: <laughs> apologies. Thank you, A Lenny. A thousand apologies as we start with Lenny Wilkins. We're only 56 minutes behind the schedule time, um, and so we appreciate your patience. You know, Usually it's me. I'm not even blaming you. I'm just blaming society for the <laughs> problems we have. And it's making wow. me, as we reflect on your amazing life and career, I kind of miss the old days. I, mean, we, I grew up south of Seattle, and we had one phone with a cord. We had the one TV that didn't even always work. My grandma would have to slap it to watch her programs. We had the Sonics. <laughs> we had a newspaper. We were doing just fine, you know? And then yeah. we added all this yeah. technology. <laughs>
3: Right. And that does change everything.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, before we talk about all the things I want to talk about with regard to basketball, primarily, obviously, and all the other good works you've done, uh, congratulations are in order. Am I correct? 60 years of marriage? Did that just.
3: Oh, that's correct. That's correct, Kenny. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh... My wife says it's because I was on the road half of the time. But,
2: uh, <laughs> yeah, 60 years. <laughs> That's Maryland, right? Yes. And that was in July, I believe. So, um, you know, instead of basketball, how about just life advice? How, how did you pull that off for 60 years? Not a lot of people have that accomplishment.
3: No, no. But, you know, it, one of the most important things is, is communication. And it's the same in, in just about everything you do. And, uh, communication is so important. You gotta talk to one another. You gotta know what we're thinking, you know, and, uh, how we make each other happy, uh, stuff like that. And we've been blessed with, uh, three wonderful children. Uh, they turned out to be, uh, wonderful people and I give her all the credit for that. Uh, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, you uh, and, and then you got to be uh, active in something that she supports and she supports me doing charitable things, being involved in the community, you know, stuff like that.
2: Yeah. So you were working a, a team. You were a team. Still are a team. Yes. Um, Still are a team. Were there mm-hmm. times, th- this might be a better question for her, actually. But you moved around a bit, you know, you you played yeah. in a bunch of places, you coached in a bunch of places. And and it was like, were there times that the call came in? You like, you know, this is the right deal for you, right? You know, you know, professionally, you should take this job or you should go to that team. But then you had to secondarily break it to her or was it always with her and she would endorse it? Then you would decide it.
3: Well, uh, I, I don't think always, but once I started, she bat me. But give you, for instance, when I first got traded to Seattle and I came out here and I was here for one year and then the general manager, they fired the coach and they talked to me about being a playing, a a player coach. And uh, I told the general manager, I said, you must be crazy, you know, but then (laughs) I said, let me think about it, you know, so. I went home and I talked to my wife and I mentioned to her that um, uh, they want me to be a, a player coach and I think I'll do it. And she said, you must be stupid or crazy. And she <laughs> said, I know you're not stupid. <laughs> so you've got to be crazy, you know. But uh, anyway, um, we pretty much agreed on a lot of things and, uh, you know, and uh, it's worked out.
2: Am I correct? Was was the coach who got fired? Was that Al Bianchi, or do I have my my timeline messed up? Who got fired to have you be the next coach as a player coach at that time? Yeah,
3: it was Al Bianchi, who I knew I had played against him, and you know, but they uh, wanted someone. I don't know, uh, you know, when I told the general manager he was crazy he said to me well you run the team anyway you know i don't know how he got that <laughs> assumption but uh,
2: you yeah. were the leader you were the point guard you know right um so mm-hmm. on, tw- on twitter as we taped this on a thursday uh, in october um on twitter just yesterday in fact it was it was caesars the people i do some work for they put on twitter they said who was your favorite player when you were age 10 and I wrote Lenny Wilkins, and I'm interviewing him tomorrow. So for the people who haven't heard this story, I've only told it a million times. I was a little kid in South Seattle. You were this uh, left-handed running hook point guard out of Providence. And, and I, I loved your play. I loved your style. I loved everything about you. And then all these years later, we become friends because I got involved with you and your foundation uh, when you would throw the gala and the golf tournament up in Seattle. And that was benefiting the Odessa Brown Clinic uh, helping some some kids in an underserved community get health care you you were involved in that cause well before it even became a true national issue this this big argument over you know the right uh, to health care in America what got you involved what did you see that that made you inclined to like take that on as as your mission
3: well uh, a number of reasons you know uh, back home um, my mom it, it was always tough on her it wasn't easy my dad passed away when i was five years old but i had some role models um uh, who uh, besides my mother uh, there was a parish priest who was like a big brother uh, his name was father tom mannion and uh, and he was always encouraging and letting us know that we had to give back when we were in position to and uh and when my mother didn't like the guys or the people i was hanging out with she would ask him to talk to me and uh he we used to call him iron hands because when he grabbed Mm. you by the shoulder you couldn't get away and he used (laughs) to always have an expression that he said to me was like you know who promised you did someone promise you life was going to be easy and and so that was always on my mind that, uh, yeah, it's, it's not easy, but but you can make it if you try. And so with him encouraging me, and then I met Jackie Robinson, who and I was a big baseball fan at that time. Uh, and the uh, Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers, were huge in our community. And I got to meet Jackie Robinson, who was a fierce competitor, uh, played with great intelligence, you know, and and he was always encouraging. So those were two guys that I looked up to. And, uh, and then when I got traded to Seattle, I had, well, I was in St. Louis first, and I used to work with uh, a program called Shoes for Kids. Uh, we provided uh, around Christmas time little things that uh, these kids couldn't afford or didn't have. And uh, so when I came to Seattle, I met two ladies who sort of adopted me and my wife. Uh, one was, her name was Freddie Mae Gautier and the other was Toby Burton. And they were very active in the community. And they introduced me to uh, the Odessa Brown Children's Clinic. And uh, the medical director was a gal by the name of Blanche Labizio who, when I saw how she worked with young people, uh, showing them a lot of encouragement, treating them with great dignity, no matter who they were or where they came from, uh, you know, uh, that wasn't an issue. It was the health care that she wanted to provide. And and that became my charity. Uh, after that, when I saw that, and I saw that they were treating Native Americans uh uh, African-American, white didn't make any difference. You know, uh, they were afforded the care, uh, irregardless of their ability to pay. So that became my charity and we started out with a roast and then we did the golf tournament and then my wife suggested we had a dinner and it just grew and grew and grew.
2: Yeah. I got to meet Tommy Davis. Uh, National League batting champion a couple times, played for the Seattle Pilots uh, briefly in 1969, the one year we had the Pilots. And he was your good friend growing up in Brooklyn. And if I have the story right, he was very influential in, in you sticking with basketball and believing in yourself to go and make the effort. Take us through your high school years and how Tommy Davis impacted you there.
3: Well, uh, Tommy and I were were good friends. We lived near each other. We used to, you know, he taught me into coming out for the high school team, which I did, and and Tommy was All-American, everything. But uh, he was uh, a starter on the basketball team, and when I came out for the team, uh, I was, like, number 15. They had 15 guys. I was number 15, (laughs) and I didn't play much, you know, and – so I dropped off the team because uh, I had a little job on the side. And, uh, but I started going to the playgrounds more. And uh, the, I, I started to play uh, the PAL, the Police Athletic League, the CYO. And I started to get better and better. And uh, by my junior year, I had improved a lot and Tommy was persistent. So I went out for the team my junior year and made the starting five. And, uh, wow, you know, I mean, but we had a great coach and, uh, he was very encouraging, you know, even though I hadn't played much, uh, he said I had great court vision. I didn't know what he was talking about at the time, but, uh, later on I began to understand. And so I kind of slipped away from baseball and went more to basketball, although uh, I still watched baseball, uh. In fact, I didn't see my first pro basketball until my senior year in college. But I had seen a lot of baseball games.
2: <laughs> well, it's both amazing to hear you know you tell it that way and, and also I think instructive for people doing anything. Doesn't matter what walk of life whether it's athletics or business or relationship, how perseverance is almost a greater key than whatever talent, right? Like, you have to not give up on yourself. But it's just funny to see that you, way back when, you are 16, 17, whatever you were, kind of had a crossroads. And with the encouragement of somebody and the improvement, and then you end up being, you know, three-time Hall of Fame basketball guy some years later. Do you ever reflect on that? Like, it could have gone a different way?
3: Not not much. No, I never thought about it other than, you know, I – other than baseball, I always thought that I was probably going to be a school teacher. So, you know, mm-hmm. I was always impressed with uh, the teachers I had, especially one in high school who was a history teacher. And he made you feel like you were right there when things were happening. And and that's a gift, you know. And, uh, and I always thought, wow. I mean, you know, uh, so... I thought possibly I might be a school teacher, but you know, in many ways, uh, being involved in sports and being a coach, you, you're teaching.
2: Yeah, no, you absolutely were and and continue to be a teacher just in a different way, maybe than you had predicted. How did you get from there in Brooklyn to Providence and how was the choice made that Providence would be the best choice for you?
3: Well, um, I you know, like I said, I only played a half a year high school ball. I, I had gotten skipped once and uh skipped a grade and so uh I graduated a half a year in the middle of this uh school year I had graduated my and um and so uh, no one really saw me play but uh, the priest friend who was like a big brother wrote to Providence College and in uh Talked to the coach, uh, wrote him a letter, and and recommended that they watch me play or come see me. And uh, because uh, they knew that I couldn't afford to go to pay for college, but he felt I deserved a scholarship. So Joe Mullaney, who was the coach of Providence, came down to see Boys High play, the high school I went to. Uh, But I wasn't playing because my class had graduated. But uh, he gave me a brochure. So I filled it out and <laughs> mailed it in and that summer I was eligible to play in uh some of the high school tournaments. So I played for a team called the Flushing YMCA and we played against all the other teams that were in the league were mostly, you know, high school all-Americans. And we won the tournament. I was the MVP of the tournament and uh Joe Mullaney, who was the coach of Providence, his dad was at the game. And he said, this can't be the same kid that wants to go to Providence. So after that, <laughs> I got a, they called me and talked to me and said that my grades were good and I would get a, a full scholarship. So I went wow. to Providence. <laughs> and uh, we had a hell of a freshman team, Kenny. We, we were undefeated. We were 23-0. and
2: Hmm. man I meant but I mean that's you know things quickly accelerated because not too long after that you know you get drafted into the NBA and everybody who knows your basketball playing and your coaching think oh this guy had it easy you know because you had such great success not everybody knows the backstory where there was this one school you had to fill out a pamphlet somebody had to notice you over a summer game or two Um, that's a pretty quick ascendancy to end up Accomplishing what you ultimately did.
3: Well, it it, it wasn't easy, and uh, you know they sent a scout up to uh, Providence to talk to me uh, about you know because I was drafted by the St. Louis Hawks, who I had never seen a pro game. Uh, you know, I didn't watch. I watched baseball. I didn't watch basketball, and uh, so uh, one of the friends, one of my friends on the my teammate who lived in Boston, the Celtics were playing the Hawks for the championship. And he said, well, why don't you see if you can get tickets to the game? So I asked the scout about it. And he took us to the Boston Celtic uh, St. Louis Hawks game. And so I watched, and I watched uh, the Hawk players, the St. Louis Hawks players, their guards. And I thought I was as good as they were, you know. <laughs> And uh, so I decided that I would try to play in the pro level. So we agreed to a contract, and I went out to St. Louis. You know.
2: Wow. Well, eventually you you came out to Seattle. And I heard you speak in Seattle just a few weeks ago. You and I were both at a fundraiser, and you were saying, you know, kind of came, you know, kicking and screaming, then quickly like, oh, I kind of like this place. And you you never left, right? Other than when you went and coached elsewhere, but Seattle. Was kind of your home base and is now. I remember, because I'm now, you know, I think maybe grade school and the junior high when you're starting to really become a star and a star for the Sonics, and they traded you to Cleveland for Butch Beard. And I, I can't tell you how, as a little, and so many of my friends, because we, you know, we revered these Sonic players and you in particular, how much and how hard that hit us. You, you at the time, had just, started to, like, get comfortable in Seattle, right? And then all of a sudden you get traded. How did that trade hit you uh, at the time? And if I have the story right, tell me if I'm wrong, you were, I think, golfing. Heard it from somebody at the golf course? You didn't even get approached directly by the team?
3: Right. Well, the train, the team at that time, they hired a new general manager. And, uh, and so, uh, and he... Had talked to me, he said uh, that I should uh, play or coach. He didn't want me to do both, and I and I said, "Well, you don't pay me enough to coach," so I just assumed be a player. <laughs> and then and then I started mm-hmm. hearing rumors that they were going to trade me, um, and uh, because they were afraid the players would want to listen to me and not the new coach, and so uh, I was out playing golf with uh marv harshman who was the coach of the uw huskies who was a good friend and uh, and we were about to tee off when i got a call from my wife saying that the, the sonic office had just called to say i was traded and uh so i didn't play golf that day i left i apologized and went home. And then when I got to my house, the media was all in our front yard. And, uh, yeah. and I was very disappointed because yeah, we did, we loved it here uh, and we didn't and at first, but when we first got here, after being here for a while, we got to meet people. Our kids were comfortable. You know, we had two kids at the time. And, uh, uh so I was very disappointed. And, uh, And I threatened that I I wouldn't go, you know. (laughs) I said I wasn't (laughs) going to go. And and I was being offered lots of jobs. Uh, But then uh, the owner of the Cleveland team, where I was traded to, he and the coach flew out here to talk to me uh, about coming to Cleveland. And after meeting them and listening and whatnot, I decided that I would go because I I felt I had some good years left that I could play. So that's how I decided to go to Cleveland, you know, but after being there a couple of years, when I was offered uh, to come back here uh, by Herman Sarkowski who owned part of the Portland trailblazers. And so I, you know, we still had a home in Seattle and I decided I would take that job. So I retired from Cleveland and when I got to Portland I thought I was just gonna be their coach and they had gotten my acquired my playing rights and I became a player coach again.
2: <laughs> you know, not eventually escape the I retired. <laughs> well, retired from playing. You know, we, we know about the, the coaching that would come soon up in Seattle. So go backwards a little bit, I've told you the story a couple of times. You came as a Cleveland player to play back in Seattle. You know, this is your return game. The place, I got sold out. I'm only like 12 years old, and we didn't have enough money to buy from the scalpers. The game was sold out, and we only had 10 or 20 bucks on us, and the, the tickets were too high. So we just, like, messed around the Seattle Center. I went on the Space Needle. I think I threw a T-shirt off the Space Needle in protest, thinking people would understand. Uh, that, that, I, don't, I don't know if I conveyed my protest the way, right way, but the, the crowd cheered for you the whole game, and I think, did Cleveland win the game? I think you did, but I can't swear to it. But I know the crowd was totally on your side, giving you the appreciation you deserved as you came back for a different team.
3: Uh, Kenny, it was incredible. And if you talk about memorable moments, that was incredible because my wife didn't want to come to the game, and so our friends talked her into coming to the game. And and they would sit with her, you know. Uh, But when we got there, right from the beginning, there were signs everywhere saying, uh, this is Lenny's country. And uh, and they cheered. And when I was introduced, they had to stop the ovation so we could start the game. Uh, It it was Hmm. incredible. And they cheered the whole game long. And that was the first time Cleveland ever beat Seattle. And we won the game. It was just an incredible highlight. I've never experienced anything like that. Uh, It it was unbelievable. And it was just amazing.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news,
2: good news is you eventually did come back to Seattle as the head coach. First, were you the assistant Then you took over for Hopkins? Is that what it was? We're, we had a slow start, and you elevated up to be the head coach the year we would eventually lose to the Bullets, now the Wizards, in 78, correct?
3: Yeah, correct. I, what happened was that uh, that summer when I was in Seattle, I was at a dinner, and the owner of the Sonics kept following me around all night long wanting me to come back, uh, to, uh, Seattle. And, uh, and I had, uh, you know, I had worked for CBS that year, uh, doing, uh, color commentating. Of course, uh, after, uh, a year or two with Portland, I left, uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, but I, my home was in Seattle. So the owner talked to me. So I came back, I was in the front office. I was, uh, you know, assistant general manager, director of player personnel, and um, they had a trade going on when I accepted the job, and I blocked the trade. They wanted to trade Fred Brown, and I said it was a bad trade. You know, 'cause I, they were trying to trade him to the Lakers for a player. I can't remember the player's name. I, I he he was he wasn't he was okay, but he wasn't. Fred could really shoot the ball. Sure. And I said, we can't give up on Fred. I said, that no. So I, they listened. I blocked the trade. And then I made a trade. I traded Tom Burleson to Denver for Paul Silas and Marvin Webster. And Dang then him. I also traded uh, – there, there was a free agent, Gus Williams, with Golden State. And uh, all we had to do was uh, pay his uh, deferred income because they didn't want to re-sign. Uh, and when I found out it was only $70,000, his deferred income, I said, I told Sam I was going to do it. And he said, okay, if you feel it's right. And I said, yeah. I said, we, we'll never get another player like that. So I got Gus Williams. And now I got Paul Silas and Marvin Wester Fred Brown and you know and, and Slick was on that team and everybody and uh, but I was in the front office and I promised Sam I would not interfere with the coaching going on and well they got off to a terrible start you know they uh, uh, I was uh, at a restaurant opening one evening I didn't go to the game and they lost that game and they were the Sons were five and fifteen. And uh, the uh, so when I got home, the babysitter said that the owner had called three times and the general manager called three times. So I finally called the general manager, and he said the owner wanted the, a change right now. And the team had already left town because they went to uh, Denver. And uh, so I said that we can talk in the morning. And the next morning I talked, uh, with them and, uh, that night they lost to Denver. And the Denver general manager said they were the worst team in the league. Carl Shear made that quote. And now Sam really wanted, he was fired up. He wanted to make a change right now. So I said, well, I, you know, I can get to Kansas City. Uh so Zali Volchak the general manager and I fly to Kansas City and we get there and Zali relieves Bob Hopkins of his job of the coaching job and he seemed relieved to me but uh, I mm. didn't say a word and uh, after the change was made I had a call a meeting of the team and I told them that I thought we could be better that it would take a little time, but that it would be important to go out tonight and play as hard as we could against Kansas City, and then we would have two, three days off in Boston where we could tweak a few things. And uh, the players seemed happy and relieved, you know, because by now they were 5-17. and 17. And uh, I, uh, we win that game by one point. And then we go to Boston and I changed the starting lineup. I tell the guys why I'm changing the starting lineup that I thought we would be better using guys in different positions. And they all uh, seemed to be okay, you know, and because uh, they were starting Fred Brown and slick as the two guards. And uh, Fred was fine with coming off the bench. Slick wasn't real happy, but he put up with it, you know, and, uh, so we went 10 straight after that. And uh wow. and we turned it around and we got to the to the playoffs, you know, we got to the finals and we lost uh that game uh and uh the next year I felt real good about it and we won the championship.
2: Yeah. No, I mean uh, now but now I'm in college, so I saw Uh, we lost to the Bullets in in the 78 finals. I was in JC, then down at UNLV the next year where we win the whole thing. We left out a couple of good names. We were appealing through. Remember, there was John Johnson, the small forward. Dennis Johnson, of course, you know, standout guard. You had the amazing three-guard offense. You had Gus and DJ and Fred Brown coming off the bench to shoot the ball. Sigma was fairly new, right? Jackson coming in, Um, you know, up and down. And they and they played such a defensive game, right? You had a great assistant coach who was who was helping run the defense. Um, that you know was instrumental in, in what you guys did to come back and and get back into the title.
3: Yeah, Les Harberger. Yeah, my mm-hmm. uh, um, you know JJ and I had played together in Cleveland, so I got him for a second round pick from uh, Portland. And, uh, oh, wow. and I, t- I used to tell Gus and Dennis and them, I said, if J.J. gets the ball, you guys take off. Because he was like a point forward. <laughs> I mean, he could handle yeah. the ball, and I said, he'll find you. So just take off and go. And, and they did. Uh, and uh, it, it was, I mean, it, it, it was a lot of moves we made. Uh, you know, Sam allowed me to, you know, make the trade for Gus to acquire J.J. for a second-round pick, you know, to trade uh, for Marvin Webster, you know. And then, of course, we didn't have Marvin that next year because uh, he he was such a valuable talent. The New York Knicks signed him for a big chunk of money. and uh, mm-hmm. But at that time, they had to sort of give you compensation. And so I took Lonnie Shelton because I had seen him play at Oregon. And... Uh, So we got Lonnie Shelton, and then Jack was, uh, the Sonics had scouted Jack, but then they were changing their mind, and I talked them out of it because I had seen Jack play uh, in the NAIA. And, you know, he rebounded, he could score, his free throws were good, and, uh, and I kept telling them that he was going to be a good player. So when I drafted him, the headlines in the Seattle Times was, Jack who? You know, and uh, and then he, we didn't get him signed until late in the summer, and he came to the summer league, and his first game was against Moses Malone. Well, Moses ate everybody up. I mean, you know, and he he scored like forty on Jack in that game. And Sam, the owner, said, "Who picked him?" and and everybody pointed <laughs> to me, and I said, "Yep, that's right, I did." I said. But give him a chance. I said, you know, he hadn't played basketball all summer. He was playing golf. Yeah. So, and well, as it turned out. He's that, in the Hall of Fame now. He's in the Hall of Fame mm-hmm. now. That's right. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, was it of all the coaching you did, and, you, you know, you kept coaching a long time after that, uh, to see a team go from 5-17 and 17 and they end up making the title series and then winning it the next year Obviously, winning a title is the biggest thing you can do. But just to see the learning process and the gain of confidence and the way players learn new roles and all that was one, had to be one of like you know, the most pleasing things you did as a coach.
3: Uh, it was satisfying. It, you know, it reaffirmed that I was doing the right things, that I was on the right track. And so I always felt every time I went to a team, I helped them to be better than they were. And, uh, and, and I loved that part of the game. Because the guys were responsive. They saw that uh, I was going to help make them better. And so it was fun in in that respect. You know, uh, uh, I, I feel that every team I coached, they were very competitive. And they competed when they stepped on that floor. And that's what I wanted.
2: The next year is when the Lakers, right, the Lakers kind of come into their own down there. And you're still a rival with them, you know, still playing them tough. But... They went on a good long run with Kareem and Irvin Johnson and James Worthy and all that. Um, and you traded, and kind of the, you'll know the, the dates better than I, you traded away Dennis Johnson for Paul Westfall. Why did you do that?
3: Well, uh, Dennis wanted out. Uh, he, uh, I, I couldn't get Sam to redo his contract. Uh, Sam just refused, and Dennis was very unhappy. And he uh, almost cost us to lose in a playoff game because he um, just was uh, an unhappy camper. And, and you know, and I, I knew why, uh, you know, because he had gotten the, the MVP award in the playoffs and he deserved a better contract. But, but Sam just refused. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted out. So the only uh, the trade that we could make that uh, we thought was going to be a good trade was Paul Westfall, and we traded him to Phoenix for Paul Westfall. Well, Paul came and he got hurt, and you know, and he had some issues himself, but he was hurt most of the year. and uh, And now Dennis uh, with Phoenix. Uh, they were going downhill as well. And so I get a call from Boston, from Red Orbach, who I knew real well, and uh, Coach Casey Jones, and they asked me about Dennis. So I said, hey, listen, I said, this guy is a great player. If you can get him, I said, you're going to have to take care of his contract, though, because he won't come other than that. I said, Mm -hmm. but if you take care of his contract, you guys, with your veteran team, he'll be a great player. And sure enough, he was. But I have to tell you this, Kenny. Uh, a year or two later, Dennis came to me and apologized for being upset at the time. But it was more because of his contract. And and I I said, hey, fine. I said, just be the player I thought you could be, okay? And he was. You know, he he was a great, oh, great sure. player.
2: Mm-hmm. You talked about having your own children, but in a sense... Don't you feel like you have several hundred children at this point, right? I'm sure you're still in contact with many or they come to you advice and explain that relationship through the years and the loyalties that you, you get, you know, you receive towards you and also that you have toward them. Well,
3: they, they, listen, they helped me enjoy my job because they were responsive. They listened, they grew and, and and I was happy about that because I told them that when basketball is over, they're going to have to do other things. And uh, and so they responded to me. And the nice thing is that when I was doing my event, the, the golf tournament and the big dinner to raise funds for the Odessa Brown Children's Clinic, when I would ask them to come, they all came. I got pictures of Magic, of Barkley, of... Uh, you know, Lonnie, of uh, Jack Sigma, of uh, Gus, uh, every, every, they all would come to the dinner and the tournament. And uh, and and I was so pleased by it because it showed so much respect they had. And we stayed in touch, you know. Uh, when I went on trips or when I coached All-Star games, they responded extremely well.
2: Yeah, no, I was looking up. Not that I don't know your career fairly well off the top of my head. I think I missed one or two points. But um, you're three-time Hall of Fame member, correct? Player, coach, and Olympian. Yes. Yeah, and, I'm the and, only one in and,
3: three times.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I think the internet hasn't caught up to that because I saw so many sites that would talk about two-time player. and co- I said right. that, but there was also, was it the 90, 92 Olympics? Do I have that right? The, 92 Dream as Team, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Did you get to go make a new speech each time? Like, how does that work? <laughs> yeah,
3: well, they asked you to come. I, and certainly it's a highlight. And I would go. Uh, I'm very thankful for that, you know, and um, to be the only one in three times. And and then I, uh, you know, I was the head coach in 96 Dream Team. And we won the gold. And, uh, mm-hmm. and that was fun. You know, uh, because that time the Olympics were held in Atlanta. And uh, so it was wonderful to have it in our country uh, before it was in Barcelona, Spain, which which was a great Mm -hmm. experience.
2: Mm -hmm. Do Do you are you one of those guys who looks at basketball and says it was better at a certain period of time? Or do you just accept that basketball is what it is at the time? that it's in, right? It's a different game today than it was 10 years ago and 20 years ago, and certainly when I was a little kid watching it.
3: Yeah, well, it, I do, Kenny. And, and it, you know, the hard thing is that the players in each era are great. Uh, they're allowed to do more things in different eras, you know. Um, back then, we had to pass. We had to play defense. We had to rebound. You had to do all those things. And today, it's more scoring than anything, but they're still great athletes, and and it's no easy thing to win a championship. So you got to give them credit.
2: Yeah, I mean it, it's hard because you could grab a player from the nineteen sixties and like, oh, how would he possibly compete? It's like, well, maybe he would. Maybe we just don't know because you can never do the control test, right? I mean, I think Wilt Chamberlain would do just fine today, right? Like there, there's all sorts of players through the decades. That would transfer over to any decade.
3: Exactly. Exactly. Yes, that's for sure.
2: W- would you have developed your three point shot by now? Where you, you know you were the you were more passer and little left handed running hook. You had a good jump shot for sure. But would you wanted? Would you have wanted to back out and be launching? You know, like Steph Curry does.
3: Well, I, I you know it's hard to say. I mean, I knew that I could get to the basket. I don't care who was guarding me. I could get by them. And, and I felt that by doing so, I was able to score or get my teammate an easy shot. So I, you know, to me, it's, uh, you know, it's whatever uh, makes you effective. And so I think that uh, probably would have shot more threes. Uh, but uh, I liked what I was doing at the time, and I could do it well, and uh, and so I did it.
2: How disappointed were you when you saw the Sonics depart and head to Oklahoma City? From my perspective, I I was way out in Connecticut, you know, working at ESPN and watching them from a distance. And I kept thinking, oh, somebody's going to come in and, you know, this is not going to happen. There's no way that's going to happen. And then sure enough, you know, they sold it to people who don't live in Seattle. They gave it a couple of years. They didn't get the gym they wanted and they took off. But it was just stunning. It still is in a way. Almost unbelievable that we don't have an NBA team there.
3: Well, you know, I was in the front office for a little bit. During that time, I had come back. uh, I stopped coaching uh, uh, back east, and um, I was in the front office, and I could see what was happening. And I uh, was—I didn't think it should happen. I didn't think we marketed the way we should have the team, Uh, and they—but they they didn't want to listen to me. Now, the only time they listened to me is when uh, I was asked to go back to New York for the draft, the lotto pick. And I got the second pick. And I knew that Portland was taking the kid from Ohio State. They had the first pick. So I told uh, our people in Seattle that we were going to get the best pick in the draft. And that was Kevin Durant. I said he could play two, three positions right now. And, uh, so when they had the draft, they, they wouldn't let me or the team doctor sit in the, in the room with the owner. You know, <laughs> I mean, they, you know, uh, it was, I could, and, and he was upset and I was upset too, because I knew he wanted to move the franchise and I was not a part of it. And I wasn't going and I wasn't going to Kansas, uh, to Oklahoma city. So, uh, when they, uh, after that, I just resigned. I said, I don't want to be part of that because, uh, that's not fair. I said, we got a legacy in Seattle. If done right, uh, we can make this a better franchise. It has a legacy. And, and, uh, the little, uh, they did a little, um, rebuild job. Uh, all they did was add some seats. They did a very poor job of redoing, uh, the Coliseum. And so I resigned and didn't want any part of it. And uh, and they moved, and I think it was to the detriment. Uh, you know, Oklahoma City hasn't done anything. Uh, I mean, they competed, but they haven't done anything. And I think that uh, with our legacy, the Sonics should have never been sold.
2: Yeah. Well, now you talked about the rebuild for those who don't follow. We have the Coliseum, which was built for the World's Fair Way back in sixty two, I think it was. And then they, they threw some seats in and maybe threw in a couple luxury boxes. But now the the new joint, the, the climate pledge arena on the same, you know, grounds is absolutely world class, right? We have the storm, they're doing great. We've got the Kraken, they throw concerts. I mean it's it's ready for an NBA team. What do you think it's gonna take to to actually make that happen? Because I keep hearing the hints. I thought Silver, the commissioner a couple years ago, kind of more than strongly hinted, then all of a sudden there's a bit of a pullback. So I don't really know why there's any more delay when clearly there's enough players. The international game is so good, we could throw together a couple more teams and not dilute the league, I think.
3: Yeah, there's no excuse now. Todd Lawicki uh, and his group, they they, uh, redid uh, the arena. It's called Climate Pledge Arena. It's beautiful. I've been there to see the Kraken play. I saw uh, the Storm play. And I was there for an exhibition game between Portland and uh, the Clippers. And it had well over 18,000 people, and they were going nuts. So, uh, I, hey, it's ready. There's no excuse, and I'm hoping that it happens soon.
2: And can we get you to come back and coach? Would you be willing to take that? You don't have to play or coach. Just would you want to roll? How about that? Would you like to be a part in some fashion? definitely definitely yeah Mm -hmm. that's a that's a good way to end this conversation with some hope um we didn't get into politics we always talk that on the side when we see each other and i hope you uh keep living your best life in seattle and i hope to see you out there one day soon okay
3: kenny and it's always a pleasure to talk to you man i enjoy it thank you so much and uh you stay safe
2: hey main is a production of me kenny main and odyssey our senior producer is paul aspen our executive producer is jody avergan and our executive producer for odyssey is lena glazer if you like our show please rate us leave a review and don't forget to subscribe